Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting-edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two, and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Del Potter, who is the Chief Science Officer at LEAF Labs. He has a doctorate in ethnopsychopharmacology from UC Berkeley and has spent extensive time in Brazil and Mexico working with shamans and studying indigenous psychoactive plants. Currently, he's leading research efforts at LEAF Labs to develop new endocannabinoid pharmaceutical and psychedelic formulations. So this episode is really about the cross-cultural transfer of psychotropic plants like psychedelic mushrooms and ayahuasca and how we can learn from these indigenous tribes and these indigenous cultures to use these plants to treat mental illness or mental health disorders. So we talk about a lot of the the research behind this and we talk about uh, Dr. Potter's experience in working with these tribes. And it's really a fascinating conversation. We start in the jungle and by the end we are talking about the importance of current good manufacturing practices. Um, at cannabis laboratories and at um, potentially psychedelic formulation laboratories as well. All right. Well, let's start at the beginning of your career. So you have a PhD in medical anthropology from Berkeley, specializing in ethnopsychopharmacology. And that sounds like it has a lot of layers. So first of all, what is ethnopsychopharmacology? And during this research and studying period of your life, what what plants were you studying? Okay, well... uh... Ethnopsychopharmacology, that's quite a mouthful. It essentially is the uh, study of the indigenous use of psychotropic plants uh, and their cultural significance, and as well as their phytochemistry. Uh, I got there by kind of a circuitous route. Uh, I started out with an interest in clinical psychology and kind of a career path uh, in clinical psychology. But over time, I began to see the limitations of that approach, uh, mental health issues. Uh, You know, everything was kind of ascribed to intrapsychic psychodynamics and forces uh, that were all derived basically from the individual. I began to see people as operating in culture, in society, and with interpersonal dynamics. And I felt like that was an important dimension that was being sort of left out of the framework. Uh, gradually, I moved in the direction of anthropology. Uh, as, as that developed, I became interested in, uh, you know, kind of seeing how other cultures handled deviance uh, and mental health issues. Uh, so one of the aspects of that that I was interested in pursuing is seeing how some cultures are able to turn 
mental health issues around and send them in a constructive direction. So uh, I became interested in the development of the shamanic uh, practitioner, how uh, sh shaman are trained, what kind of personality they have, what differentiates them from, from other people in a, in a cultural group, and uh, how are they able to uh, develop those, their talents and uh, how, what sort of bearing that might have on cross-cultural approaches to mental illness and how we might look differently at mental health issues in this society. So I started out uh, moving from clinical psychology into this area of looking at the shamanic personality. And uh, I had this idea at the time that I was going to uh, look at the personality development of different shaman, do their uh, sort of a psychological history of uh, what was different about them from other people and how they were able to resolve the uh, personal issues that they had. Uh, and so as I began this, uh, I began to sort of deviate from that and became really fascinated with the ethnobotany or what we, I refer to as the shamanic pharmacopoeia, uh, all the plants that they were using, how they were using them, uh, how they used them in very specific ways uh, for very specific illnesses and for different existential situations that an individual might experience. Uh, it was a lot more detailed than I ever expected. And as time went on, uh, I just really became fascinated with that ethnobotany and particularly uh, working among the Mazatec with uh, psilocybin mushrooms and uh, then later on when working in Brazil with uh, Banisteriopsis capi, which is the foundational uh, ingredient in ayahuasca, although there are up to, say, 50 different uh, plant genera that end up in a, an ayahuasca formula. Uh, in addition to that, frequently in ayahuasca you find Psychotria viridis, which is sort of a DMT source uh, in combination with the ayahuasca, uh, so uh, gradually. So let me, yeah, let yeah. me let me pause you there. I, I'm just curious. Um, did you see a connection between someone who might be considered a deviant in Western culture, potentially someone who is suffering from mental illness, and someone who might be considered a shaman or a shaman personality in these these indigenous cultures in Central and South America? Well, that, that's precisely correct. What, what I began to see is that uh, people uh, in a small group, you begin to identify uh, people who have deviant qualities. Uh, but in- but, Yeah, what are deviant qualities? Um, that is that they, they talk to themselves, they have disturbing dreams. Uh, as time goes on, they may even, when they hit adolescence, they may actually hear voices from other people, uh, basically all the symptoms of psychosis that we identify in this society. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in a small indigenous group, they have a, a cultural structure that finds ways to channel those, uh, what we consider negative qualities in positive directions. Uh, so what, what will happen is you'll, you'll, they'll begin to identify uh, you know, a young person who exhibits these uh, types of uh, symptoms, 
And as time goes on, they'll sort of send that child in the direction of a mentor who also uh, is, is generally a shaman. And um, there's a process usually that takes place in adolescence where uh, it's a very difficult process. Uh, it, it's as if these uh, difficulties become more pronounced and more uh, of a concern to the individual. Uh, they become sort of obsessed with them. Uh, they go through a very dark period where uh, they are unable to resolve anything and their mentor begins gradually to steer them in the right direction, show them how uh, these, uh, what we would consider negative qualities, can actually be used in constructive ways. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And I guess my follow-up question on that is, so there are these deviant qualities that can exist, you know, essentially humans all across the world, um, mm -hmm. but in some societies they're able to better, or they have outlets, let's say, to channel some of these deviant qualities. Um, and, and what is the success rate, do you think, in, in, you know, channeling these deviant qualities? Does everyone who has voices in their head or, you know, has these wild dreams, do, does every single one of those people go on to be a successful shaman? Well, not all of them uh, are great shaman. They may actually be channeled in sort of into a lower level position, like an herbalist. You know, someone uh, who's not quite as good as a shaman, but somewhere in, on the spectrum. Uh, where uh, what happens is we tend to see these uh, proclivities uh, develop in families, and they seem to be kind of a genetic uh, ancestral uh, aspect to it. So uh, it's, it's recognized that this particular family or this, this ancestral line tends to produce this type of person. And uh, in, in many ways, uh, no one is left behind in an indigenous society. Uh, so a place is always found for someone, uh, whether or not they are at the top of the shamanic pyramid, uh, there's, they still uh, are able to find a place in that society that channels what their strengths are in a constructive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's very different than what we see in Western culture, where there is a status quo and an expected norm. Who don't mean that, meet that, or are usually shunned or... Yeah, you know, and it even extends to, to people that we might even refer to as psychopathic. In this in this society, mm -hmm. wow. there's even an attempt to find a place for them, and what what you find is that uh, by having these set up cultural frameworks for people to find a place, uh, society is able to control them to some extent. Mm -hmm. They don't get as extreme and as out there as they might if they didn't have this framework to operate in. So mm -hmm. you know, in, in California Indian culture. Uh, the shaman is usually balanced on the other side by uh, an individual who has psychopathic tendencies that are every bit as, uh, you know, dangerous as the shaman is at healing. Uh, and, you know, by, by putting a lot of uh, ritual and ceremonial process uh, in, in, as an obstacle for that person, it, it, they're able to channel... Uh, their behavior in more constructive ways. Mm -hmm. So take us back to really how you learned this and how you observed this. Were you living with these cultures in Brazil and Mexico? 
with yes, these indigenous I, tribes? I, I spent a long time, uh, you know, in in both Mexico and in uh, Brazil, working with these uh, different groups uh, among the Mazatec in Mexico. Uh, I had the good fortune of uh, meeting Maria Sabina, who uh, was, you know, considered, uh, you know, one of the most fa famous shaman for mushroom rituals. You know, during the time that you you spend living with or, uh, you know, in proximity to uh, people, you begin to understand them in a, in a much deeper and much, uh, a much more effective way, I think. Uh, and what usually, was your experience with Maria Sabina? Uh, yeah, I, I attended a, a mushroom ritual uh, that uh, she put on. Uh, she was actually in, very old at that time when, and was in the process of training uh, new people to kind of take her place. Uh, she was somewhat unique in that uh, she didn't have a mentor. Uh, she sort of found uh, her shamanic path on her own. Uh, her story was that she was wandering in the forest and she didn't have anything to eat. And she came upon um, some species of uh, psychedelic mushrooms, which she consumed. What else did you learn about um, how some of these different psychedelic plants are used in the shamanic pharmacopoeia? One, one, of, one of the things that I, I came to realize very early on was that uh, they are able to be uh, shaman and the Mazatec people differentiate mushrooms in a much more precise way than we do. You know, we have our species and our varietal uh, differentiation. They took things uh, to a whole other level. They were concerned with where a mushroom, even though it might be the same variety or species, they were concerned with exactly where it came from. And they considered certain areas to be more consecrated than others. And what I found when I uh, analyzed the actual chemistry of the different varietal species that they came up with, uh, I was able to find that, in fact, there were uh, chemical dis differences, profound chemical differences between the same species, but uh, varietal differences uh, in different geographic areas. Uh, that specificity is something that they built upon uh, to very precisely treat uh, very specific focused medical issues, but also to kind of custom tailor it to the individual and his or her existential situation. So it wasn't just a matter of, you know, hey, let's use this mushroom and let's see what happens. Uh, it was a very precise uh, matching of person, situation, and mushroom to whatever their malady was. Mm -hmm. So what would be an example of a malady that could be treated with these psychedelic mushrooms and, and how would they come up with that customized formula? Uh, well, everyone expresses it differently. Uh, very often, uh, these, the mushrooms are used to resolve interpersonal difficulties. Uh, you know, someone believes that someone has put a hex on them or is trying to influence them in a supernatural way and uh, they become obsessed with it. Uh, and it becomes almost, it becomes very similar to what we see as an obsessive compulsive disorder uh, in this society. Another uh, aspect is someone will have uh, a really 
specific pain somewhere that uh, doesn't seem to be derived from an actual physical illness, but is uh, more of a spiritual or mental illness. Uh, more like uh, what we would refer to as uh, hysteria or uh, what was classically uh, recognized by Freud where people would either faint or uh, would occupy, uh, you know, would have their muscles frozen in a particular position. Uh, we would see that a lot. One thing that was super common was uh, people would present with like what they described as a, a ball of pain in their stomach. And she would very often uh, relate that both to uh, a supernatural process that was taking place, that someone was trying to uh, send bad, sort of bad energy their way. Uh, and uh, at the same time, she would, she would offer that individual sort of a pay to uh, both remove that, send in good energy, and sort of reintegrate them into, uh, into the group. Mm. And what about some of the other mental health conditions that we discussed at the beginning, whether that's psychosis or schizophrenia, you know, some of these, uh, some of these in Western culture, of course, they're categorized as mental illnesses, but um, they're just, you know, essentially this deviation in expected behavior. Did you see shamans treating um, people with these conditions with psychedelic mushrooms or with other plants and, and seeing effective results? Uh, when when someone starts to uh, show those kinds of symptoms, uh, you know, we we would probably group uh, the kind of treatment that she did more as uh, uh, obsessive compulsive, more in the in the area of uh, neurosis rather than psychosis. Mm -hmm. But when people did display those kinds of things, uh, she felt a very personal uh, attachment to that person. And uh, it would usually require a much longer period of time for those issues. Uh, she would kind of take them under their wing, her wing, and uh, spend a great deal of time with them. And it would usually take a number of sessions uh, for them to be reintegrated into the group. Uh, part of the dimension of this that I, I think is super important is the way in which, um, you know, the, the community dimension. Uh, it wasn't actually only the individual that she would be healing. It would also be uh, getting the community to accept the change. Uh, in, you know, we can see in our own society when someone uh, exhibits uh, the symptoms of mental illness, there is kind of, we call it, you know, an enabler or someone who is supportive and has some investment in that person remaining ill. Uh, this is recognized in indigenous society. So there's this whole community dimension where uh, the community buys into the change. Uh, and as the change takes place, there's a healing not only of the individual, but of the entire community. Mm -hmm. And would that enabler or that supporter usually be a family member or someone in the community? A family member and oftentimes... Uh, that family member is recognized as the source of the problem. Okay. Uh, you know, whereas we would normally look at it and say, oh, well, this is the result of some trauma that the individual experienced. They would say, uh, well, it's actually the intervention of this person uh, at a spiritual or supernatural level that's causing uh, this person to experience the symptoms. Mm -hmm. What we 
what I found uh, the uh, the psychedelic mushrooms to be most effective were uh, for were again what we would characterize as obsessive compulsive disorder or a kind of recursive uh, thinking. Uh, we would also see this in the society expressed as addiction, uh, but also uh, what we would also describe as PTSD. Uh, people had a, a tremendously uh, difficult event in their lives uh, that was very difficult for them to deal with, and uh, they, uh, she would provide like the ability to take away the bad energy uh, and bring in, in what she she would refer to as uh, energy from the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're doing this research and you're observing this happening in these indigenous cultures, it, it sounds like the community plays a big role in it. So it's not just that the individual goes off, takes a substance, and is healed, but um, they, it sounds like they need some degree of support uh, when they come back from these psychedelic experiences to reintegrate. Yes, and the the ceremony is uh, uh, structured uh, with an audience, uh, mm-hmm. and um, it, you can look at it uh, as if the person who is most in touch with the supernatural and with uh, the healing process is the shaman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in between that, there'll be people chanting, singing, drumming, uh, setting up a cadence, uh, which I believe is a super important part of the ceremonial process. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if you're familiar with rapid eye movement desensitization therapy, where yes. you know people uh, are able to deal with trauma uh, by uh, accessing a rapid eye movement. Uh, these cadences, these chants, these these songs tend to set up the same kind of uh, uh, cadence that, that allows access to uh, the emotional part of the brain. Uh, so you're gradually led into the healing process uh, with a series of steps. The first step being the sounds, the music, the chanting. The, another step might be the drumming. Uh, so you're, you're gradually approaching uh, the realm of the supernatural or of mental illness. Uh, and all of this is contributing to uh, allowing the full expression of emotion without judgment. Uh, what's being removed here is the, uh, the judgment that comes from the prefrontal cortex. And this is kind of mimicked in the action of psychedelic uh, compounds. Uh, what we found is that uh, in in the psychotherapeutic process with psychedelics, uh, we see more activity in the older parts of the brain, the amygdala, and a sort of a cutoff of the judgment aspects that come from the prefrontal cortex. So now that person is able to express emotion and feelings that were being restricted or channeled in a certain way that was not healthy. And it's it's a process of resetting that takes place. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So I do want to talk about the cross cultural transfer um, because I think there is some some research showing that a lot of these plants could be extremely useful in treating psychiatric and mental health issues. Um, 
But of course, there are, you know, there are these key elements, these ceremonies and these rituals and, and these guides, which helps um, facilitate the experience. So I think it's very clear that we can't just take a psychedelic mushroom, you know, start selling it at a dispensary and expect people to go home and have these powerful medicinal results. So I'm wondering, um, and, and then of course, you know, during the 60s, there was the experimental movement with LSD and so many people talked about set and setting as being key for the experience. So what do you think is the best or the most effective way that we can bring some of these um, psychedelic plants into, into Western medicine and into Western culture to help treat some people who might be, you know, deviants or, or suffering from mental illness and, and maybe not even just mental illness, but also addiction or post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Well, uh, the thing is that, uh, in, I, I'm, as an anthropologist, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really suspect of uh, the Western uh, m model of how we sort of appropriate things from other cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, we'll go in, we'll see an element that we, we think we like, uh, we'll grab it, we'll take it back, we'll commodify it, we'll put it into the marketplace, and we'll sort of abstract it from its cultural context. Uh, I think this uh, is a real disservice because uh, we're missing out on the thousands of year old legacy that comes with the entire experience. Uh, so we, we grasped at psychedelics and psychedelic uh, compounds uh, using the only tools we have. And in this society, uh, that's best expressed uh, as you know, psychiatry or psychological models where uh, it's an individual who is having a psychotherapeutic session. Uh, what I'd like to see is, and I'm not saying we should wholesale uh, appropriate the ceremonies of indigenous people. We can't do that. We, we weren't raised in their culture. We don't have their worldview. A worldview that uh, you know, takes a childhood and a language and years of development to acquire. What, uh, what I'm saying there are some lessons there, uh, and we need to find ways to construct these experiences for the best possible outcome in this society. Uh, and as I said, I, I think a lot of attention has been uh, paid to uh, the individual dimension. Uh, what I think we need to take a look at is how we can construct our cultural context using the lessons uh, acquired from uh, indigenous societies. That is that these things uh, are best experienced in a group setting, that uh, it's important to get uh, the uh, immediate interpersonal family to buy into the changes that are taking place. And that is, it, it, it is as important to treat them as it is to treat the individual. Uh, and even beyond that into uh, developing uh, what I would almost refer to as uh, 21st century ceremonial structures uh, that, uh, you know, express, you know, what we want in our society, but recognize this legacy uh, uh, from indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Well, I do want to play devil's advocate on that point, because I, I think it's not always, I think there are people in Western culture who are interested or are curious about this 
as medicine, but couldn't necessarily get their whole family or, or community in the same headspace. So, so what do you think kind of, you know, given that is an assumption, which may or may not be true, depending on people's situation, what are smaller ways that we could integrate, um, some of these plants into healing modalities? Sure. Well, as, as an anthropologist, uh, as opposed to a psychologist, I approach people the way I would approach a culture. So the questions I ask are, how does that person, uh, you know, get, acquire their subsistence? How, what is their worldview? Uh, what, uh, what, uh, what is their kinship structure? I mean, even if it isn't family, we all have, uh, you know, a kinship structure of some kind. Uh, what is the history behind uh, how they got here? Uh, and that history includes, you know, elements of uh, culture around them as well as their individual experience. Uh, so for, you know, to answer the question, uh, I, I, I really believe that, uh, you know, if we're going to go forward with these substances, we're going to have to construct uh, ways of administering them for the best possible outcome. Uh, you know, that may not be the same for everybody, uh, but these aren't, uh, I think, substances that you take casually. This mm -hmm. isn't a recreational experience. Uh, usually what's interesting about it is uh, one dose has a profound effect uh, lasting for months and months, and that's one of the benefits uh, that we see as far as addiction is concerned. Uh, and you when get, you say one dose, are you specifically speaking about um, psilocybin, psychedelic mushrooms, or all no, of I, these plants collectively? I'm, I'm speaking sort of collectively, uh, okay. but more in the realm of psilocybin and LSD. Uh, Maria Sabina, when uh, Albert Hoffman and uh, Roger Heim and Gordon Wassoon showed up for the mushroom ritual, they took mushrooms, but they offered her LSD. And uh, she confirmed that, uh, in her mind, the spirit of the mushroom was contained in the pill that they gave her. Uh, there is uh, a, a lot of similarity chemically between yeah, the Yeah, the molecular structure is, is quite similar, right? It's just LSD yes. aesthetic. Uh, the, this, the chemical structure is both similar and the... Uh, receptors that they uh, most influence are very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of, I tend to group those two together. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so when I say one dose, you know, there is uh, a whole body of research emerging on the use of ketamine for depression. Uh, I think it's a similar sort of process. Uh, you know, my personal inclination uh, is seeing sort of the benefits of psilocybin and LSD. But in, in, in both the case of ketamine, psilocybin, LSD, what we see is after just one administration, uh, people go through a period uh, of sort of an afterglow where uh, for a long period of time, it takes a while to integrate the experience, but it, it kind of inoculates them, uh, let's say, against addiction against uh, the uh, obsessive compulsive rituals, against uh, the uh, fear and terror that PTSD brings. Um, one other aspect I think is super important in that experience is how 
uh, it influences one's sense of time. Uh, you know, trauma is, uh, the difficulty with trauma is it doesn't have the time stamp that memories normally have. Uh, you know, we're, we able, we're able to usually integrate memory with a, with a kind of time stamp and put it away and recognize it as being in the past. The problem with uh, PTSD is that those memories emerge into the future without that time stamp. So it's as if they're happening again right now. Uh, what these substances tend to do is to, and through this cadence and through this kind of ceremonial ritual, chanting, all of the above, uh, tend to restore the time stamp and find a way of putting uh, the trauma where it should be in a, in a drawer as a memory. Uh, yeah. So experienced immediately. Yeah, I have heard that with trauma, it, all, it gets stored in the brain in the same place where you put emotion. So it mm -hmm. feels very present when it comes up. It's not stored in that proper long-term memory drawer. Exactly. And, so, and, and that is what, what these, these psychedelic plants, and I hesitate to speak about them at, collectively, just mm -hmm. because I know that they all have different, um, you know, different molecular structures and different, can you know, really can have different um, effects on people. So, so with, with this, like, if, if we're specifically talking about... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk about kind of psychedelic. So it sounds like psychedelic um, mushroom, psilocybin, LSD, even ketamine could be considered one. Um, let's say uh, one category. Of course, ayahuasca and uh, DMT type experience. Uh, that also seems to fall into the same area. Uh, really? Okay. The DMT experience, the ayahuasca experience can be much more intense uh, over uh, a, a longer period of time and has, has its own benefits, uh, you know, for particularly embedded trauma or particularly embedded problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, let's talk about the ayahuasca experience because to me and, and from, from personal experience, I do think that it is a, a deeper and more intense experience um, whereas I think psilocybin and psychedelic mushrooms can be used um, in a more, I guess, in a more playful sense. Um, so, so what do you maybe? Sorry, <laughs> an introductory way. Yeah, introductory, perhaps. right? Exactly, introductory. Like I, I think, um, and maybe you can speak to the science of this, but but I do think with psychedelic mushrooms, um, there is more control. From um, and, and this could also depend on dose, but there is more control in terms of um, the user in, in what they where they want their brain to go or what they want to access. Whereas with ayahuasca, uh, you know, and they call it the mother plant, the mother takes you where she wants you to go. Um, is that true based on your scientific research? Yeah, it is. Uh, some of the you know there there seems to be a quality in ayahuasca that is very unique. Uh, when it's uh, administered in urban settings uh, or rural settings uh, or even in uh, rainforest settings, uh, at some point during the experience, everyone's kind of experiences these jungle images. Uh, the, you know, you might see animals, you might see uh, uh, snakes particularly, uh, and the shaman will direct your attention that that uh, is the vine trying to speak to you, uh, trying to give you a message. 
and uh, you know it, it is a, a, a much uh, more profound experience, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, what is the difference, maybe molecularly or, or with the plant, um, between ayahuasca and let's say psychedelic mushrooms that accounts for that? Well, what, what's interesting about ayahuasca is uh, it is a generic term for a whole variety of different shamanic formulas. Uh, you know, uh, Terrence and Dennis McKenna did some early research on this and uh, found out that there may be up to 50 different uh, plants that are used in the ayahuasca mixture, uh, all different biodynamic constituents intended to have additional effects. Uh, so here again is the way that shaman sort of tailor it to the individual. Uh, there's been recent uh, research that suggests uh, a tremendous benefit for some of these mixtures for uh, Parkinson's disease and neurodegenerative diseases. And uh, what we think might be happening there is uh, the psychedelics uh, organize a, a certain type of healing process, but the other constituents of the mixture add to that healing process. Uh, they're very high in, in like B vitamins and uh, restorative, uh, you know, uh, uh, chemicals. So uh, it again, it's something that let's say that somebody presents with a very specific problem. Uh, different shaman will put together a different formula for that person uh, based on the the individual and based on uh, what it is they're actually trying to heal. Uh, the main components of, uh, of ayahuasca are the 5-methyoxy-DMT, usually derived from Psychotria viridis. 5-methyoxy-DMT uh, is distinguished by being much stronger than regular DMT, uh, approximately five times as strong. Uh, and if you've ever experienced it separately, uh, it's uh, a pro profound, life-changing experience. Uh, if you, you inhale it, uh, by the time you've exhaled, uh, you're uh, at a higher peak than you've ever been on any psychedelic by the time you exhale. So it's kind of like being shot out of a cannon. Wow. Uh, when it's combined with the compounds that are in Banisteriopsis capi, they act as what, is, what are called MAO inhibitors, which tend to uh, enhance and accelerate that experience and give it more duration. Uh, so the experience of being shot out of a cannon uh, and having it that the duration of that extended. What what you know experientially, uh, it allows one to uh, see uh, sort of a change of foreground and background. That is that what is present before us as foreground, we become used to we. We develop habits. Uh, all of a sudden, those the foreground and background are exchanged, and we have no script. So uh, there is a necessary process of reconstructing a, a script com completely mentally. What do you mean we have no script? Well, we have no, you know, uh, when we operate in a foreground, we we put certain things in the background. Uh, it allows us to get through the day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that we don't have to depend, you know, uh, pay attention to every bit of stimuli that we see. 
So uh, as creatures of habit, we develop routines uh, in that foreground space. Uh, when suddenly that uh, foreground space recedes and the background comes forward, we don't necessarily have those routines set up. So uh, we're in the process uh, uh, in order to integrate the experience of resetting and creating new routines that incorporate uh, stuff that we hadn't even thought about previously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think definitely part of this experience is really, it's often compared to being a child again, or having a lot of, you know, sorting through a lot of new input without the same um, assumptions and restrictions that our brain typically has put into place by the time we reach adulthood. Exactly. And then another aspect of uh, what these substances do at the uh, receptors where they're most active, um, normally uh, an, a big part of neural transmission is being able to erase uh, the transmission from going to uh, you know a number of places. We, we tend to develop channels where our, our neural pathways and neural activity go through very specific channels and those can be habits and those can develop rigidity over time. Uh, what we see these compounds doing generally and ayahuasca in particularly is erasing uh, those channels. So the neural message is able to spread over areas that it hasn't been able to spread before. Uh, and at it, it first that's in an uncontrolled fashion. Uh, so it can be terrifying, uh, but gradually as you move into the experience, uh, you develop the ability to uh, sort of reset and find new channels. Okay, I, I think I'm interested in approaching this from the, um, you know, approaching this as like a cross-cultural transfer. So I, I'm in Colorado and, and psilocybin was just decriminalized in our our last election, which which I think is one of the the first steps, you know, we're very early on the frontier, uh, but I do know that um, psychedelic assisted therapy is becoming more, I wouldn't say common, but, but it's becoming available in certain circles. So I do think we are going to see, you know, this slow movement of some of these psychedelic botanicals and plants being used in psychotherapy or, or being used medicinally in the U.S. or in Western culture. So how do we let let's say that that's you know going to happen how do we design these experiences culturally um in, in a way that is respectful and effective so you know, it's, it's yeah it's, I, yeah I, I mean so you're not just i guess what i what i'm saying what i what i would fear is someone's just popping in from the office you know getting to the therapist's office at 6 p.m and doing that and and i i i I want to say I, I hope that there is some, you know, there is some gray area um, that's not total cultural appropriation and, you know, taking these substances and using them in our own way, but but also in ways that are, are realistic for for people who might have families or, or might have, you know, careers where, where they aren't able to, to go to the Amazon or go to Mexico and be able to experience this or don't even, you know, have the resources or, or um, the connections or the money to be able to experience it in that more traditional way. Uh, yeah, no, it's very true that, um, you know, you know, the best uh, approach is not to just appropriate 
uh, what we find in indigenous societies, but sort of learn from that and construct our own methods. Uh, again, you know, I, I think these are not substances that we should take casually uh, or the experience uh, to take casually, that we should also consider uh, the post-session uh, structure and how people are going to integrate the experience into their daily life. Uh, you know, one of the aspects of the dietary restrictions in, in indigenous societies is it gets you thinking in a different way. It slows everything down and starts you paying attention to uh, different issues and sort of gets you your mind oriented to an altered state of consciousness already or to a directed state of consciousness. So this element of preparation, uh, I think, is something we can learn from. Uh, we, you know, kind of want to focus on the issues that uh, are most important to us because these uh, substances are going to have a profound effect on all aspects of our life. But as far as structure goes, uh, you know, I, it's not, again, something that will be used recreationally, but uh, I'm thinking maybe, uh, you know, we'll have uh, sort of psychotherapeutic centers uh, that people can go to and be assured that uh, they'll have the structure there uh, that'll provide the most beneficial outcome. Uh, and again, I believe that it's best to bring in uh, one's immediate uh, kinship circle, uh, broadly speaking, uh, as a way of, you know, making sure that the change is lasting and getting everyone to buy into it. Uh, you know, and, and the details of how we're going to work this out, uh, I think, uh, are, it's, it's going to take a while. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think it's something like, uh, with cannabis where we can just sort of appropriated and you know we, we kind of did do the same thing with cannabis uh, cannabis is used indigenously and in a, a much more structured way in other societies uh, but now its use is pretty casual uh, mm -hmm. we can get away with that with cannabis but I don't think we'll be able to get away with that with psychedelics yeah I, I agree completely and I think that transitions us quite well to um, the other topics that I want to talk about with you, because I know you're also the chief scientific officer at Leaf Labs. Um, and do you guys just sell CBD products or is it a cannabis company? Um, we, we do a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Leaf Organics is our, uh, our wellness nutraceutical line, uh, largely concerned with CBD, but I'm in the process of bringing in some new formulations that will include other cannabinoids. Uh, and we have just uh, spun off a subsidiary ZBN research uh, that I'm also chief science officer of that is concerned with pharmaceutical development and mm -hmm. really creating uh, over-the-counter drugs that are based on endocannabinoid formulations. Mm -hmm. So how did you transition from studying in Brazil, in Mexico, to your current position? Um, you know, I have a background in uh, analytical chemistry, and uh, I, over time, developed uh, a background in chemical engineering and industrial process. Uh, I kind of became fascinated with uh, the industrial process and making things work efficiently. Uh, but I still, in the back of my mind, the whole time was thinking, when can I get back to 
uh, doing pharmaceutical formulation and leverage some of the things I learned uh, from my fieldwork experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm hoping that ZBN Research will be the opportunity to do this. Right now, we're uh, our first uh, drug formulation that we're working on, that we're just uh, now starting preclinical studies on, uh, addresses insomnia uh, and anxiety-related insomnia. Uh, and this formulation involves CBN, uh, which is sort of widely acknowledged as uh, sort of the sleep-inducing cannabinoid. Uh, and uh, we paired it with a number of different entourage chemicals uh, that, you know, sort of target it and make it more effective. Uh, subsequent to that, I'm hoping to get into areas of pain relief. Uh, and I think that's that's a area where endocannabinoid formulations can help a lot, and possibly cut into opiate use disorder. Uh, but I haven't left uh, psychedelic compounds at all. Uh, part of ZBN research will be concerned with the development of uh, psychedelic formulations. Uh, I'm right now working on uh, a way of uh, allowing the DMT experience to be prolonged. Uh, without uh, necessarily using ayahuasca, uh, so that it's it's more of a slow infusion of the DMT experience. For example, one of the things that I'm I'm still also very concerned about is capturing the range of uh, psychedelic botanicals that are out there. So we're working on a proposal right now to create. Uh, a, I guess you would call it a conservatory of psychedelic botanicals. Uh, phase one collection of psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybe, conocybe species, uh, as well as, uh, uh, you know, varietal, geographic varietals expressions of all those species. Uh, again, I feel like uh, there's some real unusual things to be found at in these geographical niches that need to be captured and preserved. Uh, you know, I'm, we are underway currently with uh, DEA Schedule One licensing. Uh, you know, as you might imagine, that is a long and uh, difficult process. Uh, you know, as a Plan B, we're also working on uh, developing facilities in Colombia and Jamaica. Uh, where the uh, climate for this kind of research is a little more accepting. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you mean the political climate? Or? Uh, yeah, you know, the Jamaican government is very interested in, for example, uh, these compounds uh, as a pharmaceutical endeavor mm -hmm. and being able to export them from, from Jamaica. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's more the climate I'm, I'm interested in working in. And so, really, the way I see it is the first step with the psychedelic compounds is let's uh, collect everything in one place. Let's standardize GMP cultivation of them. Uh, let's also standardize uh, GMP extraction of them. And then let's take a look at combining them, leveraging the research that I've done on shamanic formulas uh, as a way of uh, preserving those as well. Uh, yeah. So I'm wondering if it, if you do see a future of combining cannabinoids um, with molecules from some of these other plants that we talked about. Oh, I do. To create, uh, and yeah, I do to create see, medical formulas. 
yeah, I do see the possibility of uh, new psychedelic compounds, uh, you know, uh, sort of a bridge between the two. Uh, you know, uh, cannabis is also s somewhat of a, a psychedelic compound. Uh, but the first step, I feel like, is let's put together the commodity building blocks. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's develop standardized extraction and standardized compounds. Uh, and then let's associate that with a research and analytical effort uh, to develop new compounds. Yeah, I agree. And I think I do want to talk about the um, current good manufacturing processes that you're working on, both with cannabis and with some of these other psychedelic botanicals, because I think that's such an important part of this path for these to be considered, you know, mainstream medicine. Um, and of course, yeah, I think and one of the problems we've seen in cannabis is either a lack of consistency um, in terms of CBD profiles or THC profiles or terpenoid profiles. So, so patients aren't necessarily having the same experience every, every time. And I think that's super key when people want to use this as medicine, they need to find what works for them and be able to accept that it's going to be the same every time. So how do you go about, uh, and I do think we're seeing some process, some progress in cannabis in, in developing these good manufacturing practices. But where do you, how do you go about setting up these processes for some of these psychedelic plants? It's a it's a good question. You know, I think uh, I, I'm I'm just going to speak to in general. Uh, I think the first step is even before uh, or in parallel with. Uh, GMP manufacturing processes are preclinical and clinical studies. Uh, as a result of the fact that uh, psychedelic compounds and cannabis have kind of been uh, a poor stepchild uh, in pharmacology and because of the uh, negative uh, connotation that they've acquired uh, and you know that's been reflected in uh, government regulations uh, research and development uh, has 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 kind of faltered. Uh, so what happens is we have a whole industry now where all these wild claims are made. You know uh, that CBD can do everything. Uh, what what I'd like to you know ground everything in to begin with are preclinical and clinical studies, and I think that's probably the next development uh, in cannabis science. Uh, we're going to start. Uh, putting these things into trials and be able to see and validate uh, medical claims for them. Uh, in parallel with that, uh, the uh, manufacture, extraction, and standardization of compounds, you know, we can borrow a great deal from the pharmacological industry, but still uh, sort of blaze a new trail because we're using botanicals. Uh, it's a very difficult process. Uh, to get botanical formulations through the FDA. When uh, they see botanical, uh, they want to see every possible expression of that botanical uh, formula uh, tested independently. So they have, a, in their process, they sort of drive you to single molecules. So um, it's going to be a challenge to try and uh, retain uh, a lot of the whole plant aspects that are so medically beneficial with cannabis and I also believe with psychedelic compounds. We already see, you know, there are psychedelic companies out there that have taken psilocybin, added uh, 
a chemical structure onto it and made it proprietary. So now it's a single molecule proprietary uh, compound that's a long way from the original botanical. So uh, this is challenging to develop uh, GMP manufactured and standardization uh, processes for botanicals uh, at each step of the way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and what and do you think is, what do you think is lost? So when we do study, because of course, biomimicry is very common in the pharmaceutical industry and that's really how they get, make a lot of these synthetic medications. But what do you think is lost when you take a plant, um, with medicinal properties and, you know, come up with its synthetic alternative? I don't know. I, I, I think, I, 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 I see a tremendous value in doing that, but it also has an element of hubris. Like uh, we know that it's this particular aspect of the the all the botanical uh, compounds that are in the plant. This is the one we want. We're not interested in the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be a dangerous approach uh, in that sense. Yeah, and I think we did see that with cannabis. Um, yeah. With synthetic, yeah, people coming out with synthetic cannabinoid medication. I think Marinol was one um, that they used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, but they completely lost the terpenoids and people, you know, patients did not have overall a very good experience with that. Yeah, there's a really interesting article uh, in the current, uh, you know, like I think it was yesterday's New York Times uh, about the research that's going on with terpenes and how, uh, you know, the model that people are kind of looking at is, uh, the cannabinoids are more like the volume knob, but the terpenes are more like the timber, the tune it uh, very precisely. So, you know, there's always that danger when you start divorcing active principle from other compounds uh, that you're, you're leaving behind some medical benefits. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's one of the great things uh, about the way, you know, that, that actually uh, cannabis is uh, status as, you know, outside of the regular pharmacological regulatory process allowed it to develop, you know, uh, an importance for all, all the botanical compounds in the plant. So now, uh, if we really want to take a hard look at its medical benefits, we're going to have to take a look at all of the compounds, uh, present. But, and what uh, do we, what do we know? So let's look at, um, psychedelic mushrooms or psilocybin. What do we know in terms of the molecular structure and some of the different compounds in that plant compared to what we now know about cannabis? Uh, you know, what, that's that's a really interesting question and gets right back to, uh, you know, the way indigenous cultures look at uh, these compounds. Uh, I said, you know, that there's these tremendous varietal differences. Well, uh, when I actually analyzed mushrooms from these different regions, different varieties, uh, what I started finding is that they all have different compounds in them. And uh, indigenous people recognize that they have different compounds. Uh, I was one of the first to recognize that uh, uh, Psilocybe cubensis uh, variety palenque, which only grows in the area around the ruins of the the Palenque ruins uh, actually contains uh, compounds uh, like tetraharmine, uh, harmaline, and uh, telepathine that are also seen only in Banisteriopsis capi. Uh, 
and they act as MAO inhibitors uh, for the psilocybin, producing an entirely different experience. Uh, so in the same way that there are different strains of cannabis uh, that are varietal, they're not different species, they're just different varietals that are geographically located, uh, I think we see the same thing with psychedelic mu mushrooms and by extension, all psychedelic botanicals. So do you think you would be able to set up a cultivation facility similar to how we have with cannabis with different lighting formulations um, to recreate some of these environments where these mushrooms are grown? Is that is that even a possibility? Well, I, I you know, already kind of started down that path at one point, uh, you know, to be quite honest, uh, when I was a graduate student and uh, shaman were directing me to uh, psilocybin mushroom species. Uh, I resolved that uh, one way I was going to make money was to smuggle them back into the United States <laughs> and grow uh, them commercially. Uh, so I did that and uh, ended up growing thousands and thousands of pounds with the idea that uh, I was going to influence society in, in the right direction. So I was kind of young and naive. The next thing I know, Reagan was president. So <laughs> I'm not sure it worked. Uh, so, but in that process, uh, you know, I, I did a great deal of research on cultivation and with trying to uh, establish, you know, uh, standardized production models. And, uh, you know, one, one way that uh, we're able to do that is with... Uh, not even cultivating the mushroom at all, but just uh, cultivating the mushroom mycelia in in vitro in bioreactors. So uh, what we do is we just grow the mycelium, which is every bit as bioactive as the mushroom itself, uh, and harvest uh, the compounds from that. The same compounds are that are produced in the fruiting bodies are the same compounds that are in the uh, mycelium as it grows. So that's and, one approach. Yeah, uh, and were you able to have, were you, were you able to kind of test those final products and determine if they were the same, had the same like compound profiles? I, I was, I was chemistry? quite dangerous person with, you know, access to analytical tools. Uh, yes, uh, so I was able to uh, develop uh, cultivation practices that you know were the most successful in producing the highest yield and uh, the compounds that I was actually looking for uh, by influencing the substrate in subtle ways uh, able to pr provoke uh, compounds that wouldn't normally be present but I did find that the most important thing and this is also true of cannabis the most important thing was the genetic differences uh, and people don't really realize uh, mushrooms have, uh, you know, as much genetic variability as, uh, you know, botanicals. Uh, Basidiomycetes have uh, four sex cells, uh, but before they can be fertile, uh, one of those sex cells has to encounter another that is its, its sort of its mate uh, in the wild. So uh, mycelium can be growing along infertile. It must encounter uh, other mycelium and then combine their genetics for it ever to be fertile. Uh, 
So a great deal of the research that I did was along genetic lines. And at the time, uh, there weren't the same genetic tools that we have available now. Uh, so I used uh, electrophoresis to track uh, different genetic lines. But now that we have all these genetic tools, I'm hoping to use those to further differentiate uh, species and uh, their ability to produce these compounds. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, so it sounds like once we, it sounds like uh, we need to have more information about um, the the genome or the genetic structure of, of these different varieties of mushrooms, and there's probably some connection between. Um, the genomic structure and the medicinal effects that they can have. So maybe one variety, and, and it sounds like from your stories that the shamans already have this intuitive or experiential knowledge of this. So they know that certain varieties can be combined with others to treat certain conditions. Um, so, but it doesn't sound like we have, um, you know, that hard scientific data to support that knowledge. That's true. And, and so, uh, again, I see the first step is let's let's get the botanicals and mushroom species uh, all under one roof and develop the uh, GMP cultivation practices that standardize their production and find out actually what's going on with sunlight, what's going on with uh, substrate. Uh, you know, in my experience, uh, they do react. Uh, profoundly to different substrates. And when I first started out, what I tried to do for coprophilic mushrooms uh, was to more or less duplicate, uh, you know, what was their environment in the wild. So uh, they grow on cow patties in the wild. Uh, they arrived with the Spanish. So they're, they're a bit more of a new introduction uh, as opposed to other species. Uh, but they were rapidly uh, taken up by indigenous people and worked into their pharmacopoeia. Uh, but what I did was uh, I used washed cow manure and straw because that most resembled the environment that they were growing in. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's, that's how we start. We, we duplicate the environment uh, that we find them in as closely as possible and then begin to make subtle variations uh, to observe uh, how those effects change uh, the compounds that are produced. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, this is all, yeah, this is also exciting. And just to put this within a time frame context, um, when did you start doing this research? Uh, um, what, the ethnographic research? Yeah. That was in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Late 70s. Okay. So yeah. going on several decades. Yeah. Yeah, well... Um, and, you know, uh, there was a long time there where uh, research into psychedelic compounds was frowned upon. Uh, you couldn't get anywhere with it. Mm -hmm. uh, couldn't get any kind of, any kind of university affiliation. Uh, you know, it was, it was just something that was kind of put aside. And now I guess everything is cyclical and we're seeing this tremendous resurgence. Uh, I really want to take advantage of that as much as I can and push this research forward. Uh, you know, working with colleagues, uh, working with uh, the substances, uh, try to capitalize on this tremendous resurgence that we're seeing and push these compounds forward into uh, the Western, uh, Western medicine. 
Yeah, and that brings me to, to final question. So what are you most excited about in your research going forward? And where would you like to see the future of, of plant-based medicine? Well, there's two things. Uh, one is uh, I, I'm really excited about the uh, endocannabinoid research on pain relief uh, and pain relief indications. Uh, I believe uh, we're way overdue for a new family of pain compounds that are not opiate-based, that are not addictive, that have much less side effects but accomplish the same thing and maybe even do a better job of it. Uh, and that, that, that to me is a huge area and I feel like if uh, with these compounds I can cut into opiate use disorder by 50%, you know, 25%, whatever it is, uh, I feel like that will be an important social contribution. So that, that's something I'm, I'm super focused on. Uh, secondarily, uh, capturing uh, all of these psychedelic botanicals, uh, all these psychedelic mushrooms, uh, preserving them, preserving all their varieties, and along with it, preserving that legacy of shamanic formulas and shamanic practice uh, before it changes any more than it does. Uh, I want to create that library and uh, use that as a jumping off point uh, for new compounds and more focused compounds. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This has just been such an enlightening conversation, and I feel like we've um, covered so many fascinating topics. So, so thank you so much for your time and all of your sharing all of your research and your work. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.